All right, well, good morning, everybody, again. Uh, if you were here last week, we had the blessing of having uh, Pastor Ransom Kent from Grace Prez out in the Northeast come and preach to us about the purpose of pain from First Peter. And he made the joke, he was saying, I forgot Josh was preaching in Ecclesiastes. And he made the joke, he said, I thought I'd lighten the mood by us talking about pain and suffering from First Peter. And uh, what's funny about that is, as it turns out, we're going to talk about pain again today. Uh, his title from last week was... Uh, the, the purpose of pain, and the title of the message this morning is The Problem of Pain. And I didn't plan it that way. It's just what came next in the book. And in fact, I was actually considering taking all of chapter four uh, together in, in one sermon because I realized, you know, Ecclesiastes is tough sledding. We don't want to stay in Ecclesiastes all year long. We want to come up for air at some point. I get that. But sometimes we've got to slow down and let God teach us at his pace. You know, just because I might have plans of how quickly we might want to get through a particular book, uh, sometimes God's plans are different. In my experience, his plans are always better. And I mean, if you've been a Christian for more than 15 minutes, you know that's true. God's plans are often different than ours, but they're always better. So we're going to slow down a little bit. We're going to latch on to what Solomon brings up here in these few verses, and it's the question. It's the burning question people wrestle with and that unbelievers try to use in order to say that God does not exist. The question Solomon essentially asks is, if God exists, why is there so much evil in the world? So let's read these first few verses in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Now hear the words of the one true and living God. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been born and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun." It's the word of the Lord. Father in heaven, I pray that uh, as we look at these few verses this morning, that you would, you would speak to us through your word. God, that you would move me out of the way, that I would be reminded that I am not standing here for the approval of men, but to bring your word to them for you to minister to them by your Holy Spirit. And God, I pray that you would do that for your glory and for our good here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. These first three verses come on the heels of Solomon's observation in chapter 3 that God is sovereign. He is in control of the universe. He has decreed whatsoever comes to pass. Nothing happens apart from his divine plan and according to his timing. Nothing surprises God. He's ordained all of it. You can go back and listen to that sermon from two weeks ago. If you weren't here, it was called An Enthroned God, and that's what we talked about. We talked about the providence and sovereignty of God. That's what Solomon was saying in chapter 3, and now we're seeing that in this world that God is sovereign over, evil exists. So now we have a little twist to the burning question. It's not just if God exists, why is there evil? It becomes if God exists, is he actually good? Because when people use this argument, the, the problem of pain and suffering, the problem of evil in the world, 
what they're really saying is evil exists. So if God exists, he is either powerless to do anything about it, or he's evil himself. A good God would not allow evil to exist. This is what is called the problem of pain or the problem of evil and suffering. People struggle with this. This is the most common reason people reject Christianity. How can a good God who is all-powerful allow pain and suffering? And let's be honest. It's a legitimate question. You know, on the face of it, it seems like this could be good grounds to discredit the God of the Bible, and a lot of people do. If God exists, how can he let so many people starve in the world every single day? If God exists, why all the natural disasters, the hurricanes and and the floods? Why all the wars? Why all the injustice? Solomon has observed that injustice. He sees people are oppressed. There are tears and pain down here. It's better for those who are already dead Because at least they've been freed from the pain of it all. In fact, he says it's better that they were never born at all. So they never would have to witness and endure the pain and suffering that we face in this life. That's what he says. You don't have to be a theologian or a philosopher to recognize evil exists in the world. Anyone can see that. And we all do see that. But what does that mean? What, what What does that tell us? Why... Or, or what does it mean that we can all see evil and recognize it in the world? Does it mean that there's no God, as some people say? Or is, it, is our recognition that evil exists supposed to alert us to the fact that there is no God who is all-loving and all-powerful? Is that what we're supposed to deduce from that? Y'all know I love me some C.S. Lewis. And what a lot of people don't know about him is he was an atheist before he was a Christian. And he said his argument against God was this argument. The argument of pain and evil. That the universe just seemed cruel and unjust. But where or how did he get this idea of just and unjust? This is what he says. He says, a man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. So the existence of evil in the world doesn't mean the non-existence of God. In fact, the existence of evil and our ability to recognize it as evil suggests to us there must be an objective good. Otherwise, how could we call evil evil? Compared to what? Right? Compared to the goodness of God who made us to reflect his good character. Our recognition of the existence of evil alerts us to the existence of a God who is good. If there's a main idea of the message this morning, that's probably it right there. Our recognition of the existence of evil alerts us to the existence of a God who is good. That's what we keep seeing over and over again in the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon forces us to take a look at life under the sun so that we can see it's upside down. That's what we're supposed to see. Things are not as they should be, but that's just it. That's the point. That's where our attention is supposed to be drawn. How do we know how they should be? 
Because we were made to. Deep down in our bones, we know God made us in his image to glorify and to enjoy him, to reflect his very character in our dealings with other people. And where we see unkindness in the place of kindness, and where we see hate in the place of love, and where we see injustice in the place of justice, and wickedness in the place of righteousness, we we know it's all wrong. We know we're missing the mark because we know the mark exists. Three points for you this morning as we consider this common objection to the existence or goodness of God and that Solomon brings up, this problem of, of pain and evil. What is the problem, first of all? What is the solution? And what is God waiting for? What is the problem? What is the solution? And what is God waiting for? If God is all good and all powerful, why, why isn't he doing something about all the evil in the world? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. And here's why. There are people you know who need your help thinking through this very complicated, very real, and difficult subject. People are suffering in the world. There's real suffering in the world. And people are hurting and they're, they're angry and it's easier for them to blame God than it is for them to trust him. We want them to know that you can trust him. You can place your trust and confidence in this God who is sovereign, who is in control over everything. And this one triune God of scripture and in him alone. First, we've got to get to the bottom of the problem itself. So what is the problem? This problem we have with the existence of God alongside with the existence of evil, what kind of problem is it? Is it an intellectual problem or an emotional problem? Do people see all the evil in the world and come to the conclusion there is no God based on good evidence? Or is it based on their inability to deal with it emotionally? What I mean is, does the existence of evil really disprove or even provide strong evidence against the existence of God? No. So so isn't this really a heart problem rather than a head problem? Isn't what we're dealing with a struggle or inability to deal with how an all-good, all-powerful God could allow evil to exist? It's not really about the existence of God at all. It's about whether or not we like him. It's about whether or not we trust him to be God. In other words, not liking that evil exists or feeling conflicted about the problem of pain has nothing to do with the existence of God at all. It has everything to do with what kind of relationship we have with him. Because remember, there's no such thing as no relationship with God. That's not an option. Everybody has a relationship with God. It's just either a good one or a bad one. And when we look at the book of Ecclesiastes as a whole, that's what we keep seeing Solomon pointing us to. If you look at the world and you try to navigate life without God and rebelling against him, it will wear you slap out. It's just too much. Unfathomable evil intense pain and suffering. And you can try to fix it all you want or try to numb yourself to it. You can experience every enjoyment that exists under the sun and you will still feel empty. 
And that emptiness itself is a red flag that signals us to the fact that there must be something that can fill it. And it's him. The world needs fixing. We can all see that. And so we should think there must be a fix. There is a way that it should be. It's not that way. And so we're longing for it. Now, here's the alternative, okay? If there is no God, the, the worst suffering you can possibly imagine in your mind right now is utterly meaningless. You have no right to say that shouldn't happen. Who says? Who says that shouldn't happen? We have no reason to call wicked behavior evil. Com com compared to what? It doesn't matter that people suffer if there is no God. But we know it does matter. Suffering does matter. It matters big time. And God is not indifferent toward it. It's not like he's allowing it to happen just willy-nilly and turning a blind eye to it. It matters to him. Suffering matters to God so much so that he took on flesh to suffer for us. Suffering has meaning. We all know it. So if the world just is and there is no God, we really need to stop complaining about suffering. Do you see? We, we need to stop pretending that anything is evil. Anything that happens is just merely time and chance acting on matter. There, there's no good, there's no evil, there's just what is, right? Richard Dawkins, famous atheist, you may have heard of him before, he's, he's famously said before, in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, you know, that's, the, that's his worldview, that's what he says it is. It's just, a, it's just a universe that didn't have us in mind. Everything just sort of happened, right? In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, in it nor, any unjust, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil and no good, nothing but blind pitiless indifference. You believe that? Of course not. But you know what? Neither does he. Neither does he. I'll, I'll bet if someone stole his wallet, he would say, you shouldn't do that. You can't steal. That's wrong. I bet if somebody came up and just socked him in the nose one time, he would have something to say about that. He would complain about that. You should not do that. You shouldn't go and just hit somebody in the face. He's going to be making moral judgments, isn't he? He's going to be making moral judgments on the man that came up and stole his wallet or punched him in the face. But based on what? According to him, there's no right, there's no wrong. There's no good, there's no evil, there's just what is. Just biological stuff doing what biological stuff does. Crime, you know, murder, rape, wars, starvation, oppression. These are all just things that happen on a little blue planet spinning around in space. That's, none of it matters, nobody cares. 
Well, if that's the case, we better stop complaining. But we won't. We ache for justice and we'll keep crying out for it. And we should. I'm getting into the next point now. We've talked about what the problem is. It's not a head problem, it's a heart problem. It's not an evidence problem, it's a relationship problem. It's not that the existence of evil disproves the existence of God. In fact, it alerts us to the fact that he must exist. But we're admittedly conflicted over that and tied up in knots over it because how can these things be? How can there be so much evil? We're aching for a solution. So point number two, what's the solution? Justice, mercy, and redemption. Solomon observes all the oppressions under the sun and the tears of the oppressed, and he notices they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and they had no one to comfort them. There's no justice. We can see there's, uh, there's a way that things ought to be done, and they're, they're not that way. So what do we do? We cry foul, don't we? We look at something like this, and we, we don't like bullies. You can't just have people oppressing other people. You can't do that. Fix it. Make it right, we say. Because we're fallen, because we're sinners, note, it's, it's not because God doesn't exist or because he doesn't care. Because we are fallen and we are rebellious sinners who ditched God's program for creation Mankind's default is to work to our own advantage only all of the time. That's how we operate. That's why there's injustice. That's why there's oppression. That's why no matter what political party is in power, they will never have your best interests in mind wherever your best interests run contrary to their own. I don't care who you vote for. Because if we're sinners, if we're in power, we'll use our power to our own gain while thinking very little of other people. That's who we are. If we have authority, we'll likely abuse it. That's how oppression happens. That's what Solomon observes in verse 1. It doesn't matter who's in power, okay? It doesn't matter who's in power. Power changing hands doesn't change men's hearts. And until men's hearts are changed by the gospel, it will always be a case of the pendulum swinging from one end all the way to the other while it slashes everybody in the middle to bits. It is naive to think otherwise. All of human history proves that to us. Powerful men are often bad men. Powerful men are often bad men. And since that's often the case, we have the tendency to make the mistake of reading that back into what God must be like. Someone who is in power for his own glory is detestable to us because the only examples we ever have of that down here are evil people just like us. But God's not like us. It's a mistake to think that he is. He is powerful and good. 
But people will say, if he's powerful and good, he wouldn't let this happen. No, it's not that he wouldn't let it happen. It's that he won't let it slide. And he won't because he is just. God is more concerned with justice in the earth than we are. Now think about this just for a minute, okay? Who's our favorite guy to pick on? Adolf Hitler, right? Killed six million Jews. Six million. Didn't he get off too easy? Was dying once enough? Was justice served? Stalin killed, what, like 20 million people. Didn't he deserve worse than he got? Mao, topping the charts, killed more than 45 million people made in the image of God. God will not let any of that slide. Dying once is not enough. There will be judgment. Justice will be served. All the cold cases and unsolved crimes will be brought to light. All the voices of the voiceless crying out for justice have been heard. No one will get away with it. That's good news. That's a relief. That's how it should be. God is more concerned with justice in the earth than even we are. It's something to remember. Life appears to be very unfair under the sun. We see that the righteous perish and the wicked prosper under the sun. But under the sun is not all there is. There's a God ruling and reigning in heaven over all his creation, and he will not let injustice slide. As I've already mentioned, we might not see justice served in this life, but we're mistaken, y'all, if we think this life is all there is. It's not. So the first solution to the problem we all recognize, the problem of pain in the world, is justice. God will bring perfect justice in perfect measure in his perfect timing. The other thing he brings is is mercy. Solomon says the oppressed have no one to comfort them. He says it twice. And that's true. They don't. Not under the sun. But you you all remember I keep saying, I've said it from the beginning, I keep trying to repeat it to remind us this under the sun phrase that Solomon uses. He uses it over and over again. It's the key to understanding the book. He uses it 29 times. He focuses our attention on, on the horizontal so that we'll be just out of breath and so fed up and just, and just see all the pain, the angst, so that we'll look up for relief. And relief is there. It's not anywhere else. There is someone to comfort them. That's the point. They do have someone to comfort them. Not under the sun. You have someone to comfort you. I don't know everybody's story. I know some of y'all's. But whatever it is that you're going through right now, where there's no one to comfort you, that's a lie. Don't you believe it? There is someone to comfort you. And by the power of the Spirit, he just happens to have arranged people around you that want to love and care for you. There is someone to comfort you. Don't believe there isn't. Not for a minute. Jesus tells his disciples in John 14, he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, a comforter, 
to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, who the, war, the, the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells in you, and he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, he says. I will come to you. So yes, there is evil and there's suffering in the world, but we have a God who cares. He brings justice. He won't let it slide. And he has mercy and he comforts those who know and love him. So see, again, the problem of pain isn't a head problem. It's a heart problem. We don't have an evidence problem. We have a relationship problem. The solution to the problem is justice and mercy and, as I said, it is redemption. Redemption. What does that mean? We're all Christians. We say that all the time, don't we? Redeemer, redeem, redemption. What's that mean? It means compensating for someone's or something's faults. It means to gain or regain something in exchange for payment. Redeem means to pay the necessary payment to clear a debt, to buy the freedom of, to fulfill or carry out a promise. That's what God is doing. He is in the business of redeeming. Evil isn't God's fault. You realize that? Evil isn't God's fault. Don't blame him. Don't be mad at him. It's not his fault. It's our fault. We broke the world. And we can't fix it. It needs to be redeemed. We need to be redeemed. And because God is all good and all powerful, he can. And you know how he does it? Pain and suffering. Can you think of anything more evil, more wicked, anything more unjust than the sinless, blameless Son of God being openly mocked and ridiculed nailed to a Roman torture device to be humiliated by his own creatures. That that would be evil for uh, men to do that to another man. How about for men to do that to the God who made them? Is there any greater evil? But that evil was the price of redemption. That's the price that had to be paid to clear your debt. To buy your freedom, to compensate for your fault. To regain what was lost in the garden at the fall. He could do it, y'all, because he is powerful. And he was happy to do it to pay that price of redemption because he is good. He promised from the beginning he would bring redemption. So here's the trouble, though. If all that's true, why is there still evil? If he came to make it all right, why is it still so wrong? But why does he allow evil to continue? What is God waiting on? And that's point number three. What is God waiting on? There's two answers to this question. The first one is this. His delay is his mercy. 
His delay is his mercy. He gives sinners time to repent because he is patient. One of, one of God's characteristics is that he is, he is long-suffering. He is patient with sinners. Remember when, when uh, God sent Jonah to Nineveh to proclaim judgment on them? He says, you know, in 40 days, God's going to cut you down. Should God have just gone in there and just cut them all down from day one? No warning? If you knew half of the wicked and barbaric things that the Ninevites were known for, you'd scratch your head as to why God didn't do it long before that. What was God waiting for? Why did he wait so long? Because he's patient. That's why. Because he's long-suffering. He gave them time to repent, and they did repent. That's what he's waiting for. His delay is his mercy. Another answer to the question, what's God waiting for, is that the kingdom of God doesn't grow overnight. It's gradual. You remember what Jesus said, uh, the kingdom of God was like his disciples asking, they're like, what's it like? Tell us. It's like, I will. You know what it's like? It's like a guy who uh, plants good seed in, a, in his field, and then his enemy sneaks in behind him when he's not looking, and he plants some bad seed. And so when the plants start to grow, you've got wheat growing along with weeds in the field. And his workers come to him, and they're like, hey, so you want us to go get the weeds out then? He goes, nope, no, no, not yet. Lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both of them grow up together until the harvest. And then at the harvest, take the weeds out, burn them, put the wheat in my barn. So one of the things we learned from that little parable is that the kingdom of God has weeds in it for a little while. They won't always be there. But evil continues for now as the kingdom grows. It's here already. Jesus brought it. But its growth is gradual. It's like a tiny little mustard seed that grows into a big tree. It's like a little bit of leaven hidden in a lump of dough that permeates and leavens the whole loaf. That's what Jesus says the kingdom of God is like. God's kingdom doesn't grow overnight. And so when we say, what is God waiting for? We have to remind ourselves, not only is his delay his mercy, but it ain't over yet. He has plans for his kingdom that include wiping out evil and delivering justice. It will come. So the burning question we asked from the beginning is, if God is all good and all powerful, why does evil exist? And here's the answer. Because we do. We exist. And he loves us enough to not throw in the towel. He has plans for redemption and plans for his kingdom that include... Sadly, allowing evil to persist for a while. But evil is not a foe that cannot be conquered or that will not be conquered. In fact, it's been conquered already by Jesus on the cross. And it was conquered, remember, by his pain and suffering. And if you believe in him, if you trust in him, it doesn't mean that your pain goes away. It doesn't mean that. That's not the gospel. Believing in Jesus doesn't... doesn't numb you to the pain. It doesn't, it doesn't go away. But it does bring meaning to your pain. It means something. 
and God will not let it slide. He's not going to let it slide. He is good. He is holy. He is wise. He is just. And he is merciful. The world wants to curse him for that. They don't like him. But those of us who know him and love him and trust him say, blessed be the name of the Lord our God. Let's pray. Father, we can look at life under the sun like Solomon does here and we can conclude it's so bad it'd be better if we'd never been born at all. That's what he says. We can say, why would anyone bring a child into this crazy, evil world? And many people do say that. Because they have no hope, Lord. No hope of justice. No hope of mercy or comfort. No hope of redemption. Father, I pray you would give them that hope. Open the eyes of their hearts to the truth of your word. And God, be pleased to use us here as your servants to share with them the good news, the gospel of your kingdom. Bring them here to us in this place and let us say together with David in Psalm 9, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. In Jesus' name, amen.